What a wonderful weekend it's been too, right? It's just been really nice. Last week was really hot. I hear it's supposed to get hot again. Now, for me, um, I don't know what it is. Some of you guys know that I grew up with severe asthma and the weather and allergies and all those things. But for whatever it is, the 100-degree weather does not bother me. Uh, for Macy, anytime it's above like 76 degrees, it really bothers her. She starts sweating. But if it's like 76 degrees, she's sweating. If it's 75.5, she's freezing. <laughs> like, there's no room for grace within the house. So, um, God bless us. But uh, yeah, it's been a great weekend. And um, our little koi pond lost like four inches of water in a few days just because of all the um, evaporation. So um, I'm just sharing stories while we're waiting on everyone else praying in the room. We just he hear them declare in the Lord's name. <laughs> so <laughs> nevertheless, um, yeah, so what I wanted to share just in, um, so essentially a lot of the study, so I'm going on my fifth year here as pastor it seems like time has flown by, really. And probably time has flown by because two of those years just never really existed, right? It was like a big dream, a big nightmare locked in our house, it felt like. Nevertheless, two of those years went by. But this is my fifth year coming up in October. Um, wouldn't change it, loved it. Um, continually growing and learning, always humbled each day. Nevertheless, part of the study that just through mentors of mine and education about what it means to be a pastor, one of the things that they say is often what ends up happening is um, within church leadership, pastors end up getting burnt out at year 10 or 15 because at year 10 or 15, there's been so much crisis within the church or problems that have been navigated that they never felt like they had a break. So scripture talks about a sabbatical, and um, yeah, scripture talks about it. Church leaders have spoken about it. But often what pastors say is, my sabbatical came way too late. And actually, sabbatical is a really scary term for people within the church because people think, like, when there's a sabbatical, it means that the pastor is, like, in crisis or the church is in crisis. And that's the problem. Sabbatical should never be a bad term within the church. The reason why it's a bad term is because it's been used too late. Right? Has anyone ever been a part of a church or known of someone who needed a sabbatical, and at that point, it was just too late? This term sabbatical scared you. Any of you guys? I at least know Bob, it scared them. So, so um, we've been a part of that as well, where we've seen people who felt like they needed a sabbatical, but they were in ministry for 25 years, and by that point, it was just too far gone. The crisis in their life was too much. So there's no crisis in my life that I need a sabbatical. So um, what the elders have agreed upon is, hey, we want to send you on sabbatical more often than not. Meaning, not like once a year they're sending me on sabbatical, but on occasions every three, five, whatever, seven, ten years, we want to send you on a sabbatical to help prevent some of these things to um, just 
build up in your life. So from August through January, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, from August, or just the month of August, I will be on sabbatical. Um, I don't know, it's kind of bittersweet for me because it's like, you know, like there's some things I can process and think about. There's things that I can, um, that I've been wanting to do with the Lord that you just feel like you don't have time for it. But then you're like, no, but I love hanging out, having dinners. I love um, ministering in ways that we're ministering. I love putting together sermons. So it's like, how is my life going to be different I'm not so sure. And, and does sabbatical mean that we don't hang out? No. In August, I'm sure we're going to see many of you, but what it means is we're not going to talk about church problems. We're not going to talk about carpet colors or paint colors or anything else. We'll probably talk about Jesus because that's what we like to talk about, right? But we're probably not going to talk about the church and we're going to try to have fun. So Macy and I will plan on taking a trip at the beginning of August. And um, then from there, unfortunately, Macy still has to work. So I will um, just sleep in or stay up till like four in the morning and then sleep in until like two. And, uh, and then she'll be home by work and uh, say, what are you doing? And I'll still have the crust on my eyes. And um, I say, I'm taking a Sabbath, woman. <laughs> Go to work. <laughs> Someone's got to make money. And um, so I just thank you guys for being able to support that. Keep us in your prayers. But there's no scandal. There's no nothing. That's why we're telling you now, right? Um, it's like I told the elders. Um, not even sure I really wanted to do it. I just know that based upon wisdom of other people, that's what's needed. So here's what I say. Um, I, think you guys, <laughs> I think you guys come to church because of other, like the community of the church. But sometimes people seem to like the leader or they come to church because of the leader. Number one, I hope you never come to church because of the leader. Number two, if you said you came to, to church because of the leader, I wouldn't believe you, right? So what that means in August, hopefully revival takes place within this congregation. And then they say, we need to send you on another sabbatical in October or September, right? Come on, somebody. So please, um, don't think that that's your sabbatical either. Don't think that that's your time away. Maybe, um, maybe you, you prefer my preaching style or you don't prefer my preaching style, so everything will probably end up e evening out, right? Because those who don't prefer my preaching style, um, they're going to get someone else, right? And then someone who doesn't, well, you guys can just endure it, right? So we're not sure exactly what that's going to look like, how we're going to... Um, preach that um, through that month. It might just be the elders, might bring in like guest speakers. Who knows what we'll do, but keep us in prayer as we decide what we're going to do for that. But after that, um, once I get back from sabbatical, then I might need a sabbatical because we are going to start the book of Revelation. <laughs> so, so I'll probably need a sabbatical right after um, that year, 2023, I'll probably need a sabbatical. So um, be excited about that. Uh, we're going to take chapter by chapter, verse by verse, the book of Revelation, and that will start the first week of September. So be in prayer about that. Excited about it, uh, cautious about it, but there's a lot of questions during this time, right? What does the end look like? Are we end are we in the end of time? And I would say this. Here's what Scripture says. Here's what Jesus says. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. 
So what that means is we are nearer and nearer each day. And there are some prophetic signs that we continually see take place. There's um, systems being established amongst the world leaders that are um, prophetically aligning with um, what's going on, and people have questions. So through study, I've uh, been studying the past several months and continually study. Here's what you may or may not get. There's a good chance you won't get me saying, this is exactly what I believe about a few certain topics. The idea will be, here's, here's what people believe about this, and maybe here's where I lean. But um, I never think that a church should divide over issues such as pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib, right? I didn't hear any amens. Why? Because, as um, Kathy Troyer said, she's a pan-tribber. And what pan-trib means, everything's going to pan out. Amen? <laughs> everything's going to pan out. Jesus is coming, and Jesus wins. So, um, yeah, if you want to get ahead of that and start reading the book of Revelation, then go ahead and do that. You hear how I said that, the book of Revelation. So a lot of people never read the book of Revelation because they're looking for revelations. Revelations. It's the book of Revelation. So, man, you guys are so dry today, I tell you what. No, your jokes are bad. <laughs> no, my jokes are good, Mark. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, you guys just want the word, huh? <laughs> All right. So, nevertheless, we will be starting that um, come September. Next announcement we have is next week we will be having our high school graduation celebration. So, if you graduated from high school this year after service, we will be having our... Um, our carry-in. I believe that I saw somewhere, um, I don't organize everything here at the church, I believe that I saw that it's going to be Hispanic food, so a taco Sunday. So um, carry-in still, right? Okay, Stu's going to send out information this week about that. So Hispanic food next week, it's going to be fun. So plan on staying and honoring that. So high school students who had just graduated, you young adults now, we're going to bring you up, we're going to honor you, and uh, pray for you as well. So um, yeah, Galatians chapter 3, week 4, let's pray, and then we're getting into it. Father, um, thank you for... Um, who you are. Today, I specifically thank you for fathers. Thank you for my father. I thank you for um, fathers even in here who never had kids of their own, but have mentored and fathered many. Father, today I pray for um, a double portion to be poured out into the men in this room and the men who are watching online and a part of this congregation. Father, that you would give them the capacity and the capability to live into the men that you have called them to be. Father, I pray for a boldness and a surrender and a humility to where you become the number one priority in every action that they take. 
Father, help them uh, be leaders in their workplace, leaders in their home, leaders with their spouse, leaders within the church. Father, leaders at the ball fields, wherever they are, may they be so obsessed and in love with you, Father, that, um, that they make a difference in this world. Father, I pray that they, they take the words that should and could out of their, um, yeah, out of their vocabulary. So just thank you for your design of giving fathers, and we thank you for being our father. Give us ears to hear today, eyes to see. Father, hearts with fertile soil, minds to comprehend, and feet that want to run with obedience. May you move us because of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so in this chapter, in chapter 3, we've learned many things. And many of the things that we've learned have revolved around Paul's defense of it not being a works gospel, right, but being a grace gospel through faith. So Paul is defending and Paul is rebuking those in Galatia because Galatia is still saying, hey, we need to add works. It's always Jesus plus something else. The work of Jesus wasn't enough, and that's why we have to be circumcised. That's why we have to pursue baptism. That's why we have to do good works, because the work of Jesus was good, but we must add to it. So Paul is frustrated because he said, hey, look, it's just Jesus. The life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ was enough then and is enough now. So what he's doing is while he's in this discussion and sharpening and frustration with those in Galatia, he brings up Old Testament scripture to say, hey, look, here's where Jesus was in the Old Testament, and here's how the Old Testament proves to you what I am saying. And what he ends up doing in chapter 3 is he brings up Abraham, and he says, look, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him. See, Abraham didn't do anything, and actually Abraham was put to sleep when God's covenant to Abraham took place. So Abraham couldn't add to it, couldn't subtract from it. Essentially what it was was God made a promise, and God said, Abraham, in spite of how far you will fall short as a human being, my promise is to you that this will take place. Just have faith in me. Amen? So we understood, like, hey, there's faith. But then what, what then um, Paul did is Paul then illustrates, I know that there's some of you in here that are doubting this because essentially the argument was, well, Abraham's covenant came before the covenant of the law with Moses. So since Abraham's covenant came before and then God added the covenant with Moses, now um, the covenant with Moses supersedes the covenant with Abraham. Because now that he's added laws, that's more important. So Paul brings that up for those who are argumentative or just wrestling through within their mind, which one of these covenants are the ones that we need to follow? And actually what he says is, look, they both work hand in hand. And what we learned about the law last week is the law was here until the seed. 
The law was here until it wasn't. And the seed that came was Christ. So everything that the law was supposed to do was to point us to Jesus. So the first week was Abraham. Last week was um, Moses. And now this week we learn a little bit more, as we did last week, about the covenant through Christ. See, the law was there to reveal to us our depravity, and this is exactly how the two covenants work hand in hand. We believe God by faith because we understand a life by the law is in impossible. A life by the law is in, in oh my gosh, impossible. Amen? Amen? So, Galatians 3, verse 19. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. We discussed that last week. But Paul makes it plain and simple for us to understand in verse 19. The law was given because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. It was clearly stated that the law was given temporarily until something else came. A lot of us haven't ever thought about that because most of us within the room or all of us within the, no, all of us within the room have had the confrontation and had the frustration with following rules. And rules are good. Rules point us to Jesus. Rules are paramount. But there's this frustration within us to try to become better. But essentially what we learned last week is this, is rules are not on a scale. Amen? What we end up doing is we say, well, we're more holy than that person. I remember going to a... Um, a um, gathering of my friends, and I didn't know what was going on, and um, we ended up going there, and one of, um, or several of my friends were drinking beer underage. And they asked me, they said, Joey, why don't you drink? And guess what my response was? Because I'm a good kid. Oh boy, you better believe that everyone sobered up real quick, surrounded me and said, what do you mean you're a good kid and I'm not? Well, the fact of the matter is I saw the laws based upon a scale. No matter what I did that day, for some reason, God forgave me and hasn't forgiven them. So I saw the law on a scale, and what I saw is because I was not drinking underage that I was better than them. When the law is actually pass and fail. Amen? All of us have failed. So the law was given... The rules were given until the seed had came, and the seed was Jesus. So the Mosaic law, the ceremonies, the rituals, the sacrifices were all given until Jesus. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 say this, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, 
or with regard to a religious uh, festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So don't let anyone judge you because of these things. Because what Jesus is saying, or what Paul is saying here is, look, these things don't matter. These things don't matter anymore because the culmination, all of these things that pointed to Jesus is now found in Jesus. Jesus paid for it all. Jesus died for it all. It's all found in him. All the rules, all the festivals, all the regulations point to Jesus. Everything, everything in the law was shouting towards Jesus, was directing our hearts to see him, to find him, to need him, to look for him. And then once Jesus came, the law was no more. The moment Jesus died on the cross and he rose, three days later, the law was no more. Why? Because everything was fulfilled in him. Romans 10, 2 through 4. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based upon knowledge. This is convicting. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So look. They were zealous about God, not based upon knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They sought to establish their own. How often do you and I, how often has the world sought to establish their own righteousness? See, right now, you know, in a lot of the world, what we see is people just affirming that you can live into any identity that you want into any feeling, into any emotion, into any thought. And the fact of the matter is, it's still not the case. So they're seeking to find righteousness based upon their own doing. But then take the world out of it, because what you see me doing now is actually putting a scale up and saying, well, I'm better than the world. Well, no. We all fall short of the glory of God, and I today fall short of the glory of God. So I'm no better, no worse. God, um, what I am is just like everyone else, in need of a Savior. Nevertheless, look how we as the church try to seek out our own righteousness. See, God's way to righteousness was his son being sent to die on the cross and raising from the grave for our sin. For his son to receive the wrath of God so that you and I didn't have to. Jesus took on the wages of sin on the cross for you and I. But how do you and I try to uh, create righteousness within our own life? Well, maybe we pay it forward at McDonald's. All right, look, you used to be able to pay 99 cents, now you're paying $1.29 for a five-piece. So you're like, I can, pay, I can pay it forward. Or maybe what you do is you say, well, I really messed up yesterday, so I'm going to create my own righteousness, and to create my own righteousness, I'm going to make sure that I wake up tomorrow morning and read the Bible for five minutes, even though while I'm reading the Bible for five minutes, I'm not even thinking about it. Or maybe we say, I'm going to disciple someone out of obligation. 
or I'm going to go to church to try to earn righteousness. My heart's not in it, but I'm going to go to church just to earn righteousness. See, there's ways that you and I have created that we're trying to earn righteousness. Anyone ever feel like they've tried to create a way for their own righteousness? I have. See, but here's, here's how this scripture ends. Christ is the, uh, Romans 10, verse 4. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So you and I don't get to make up a way of righteousness because Christ is the culmination. Amen? Christ is the culmination of the law. He fulfilled it. He purchased us. He purchased us so that now we can receive righteousness by believing in him. That's what we do. We believe in him. Let's continue. Verse 20. A mediator, however, implies more than one party. But God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promise of God? Absolutely not. If a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Paul here is making sure that the reader understands that the covenant of the law required a mediator. This, is, uh, this differed from the covenant of Abraham because it was, a, it was a promise by God, and Abraham couldn't do anything about it. You guys have heard that, so you should be able to teach that um, to a friend this week at work or drinking coffee, right? You guys understand that by now. Therefore... We, as the reader, must ask the question, does this mean that the law and promise are two different ways to heaven? They were both important, right? The law was important, and grace and believing was important. So does this mean that there's two ways to heaven? Absolutely not. Those two things, right? So, you don't, so I don't lose you, those two things come together, and they all come together in one. And where they came together in one was Jesus. Amen? So Paul makes sure that those who are reading understand that if any laws could bring us righteousness, then God would have let us know. Right? For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But life couldn't happen because of that. Righteousness couldn't happen. God would have said that the way to him was by works. But that's not the case. The law did something else. The law has the capacity to bring about conviction of sin, and that was God's plan. See, the whole world is guilty. And if judged by works, the whole world is what? guilty. They're charged by the law. We are guilty of sin. So, when God granted mercy, it came not by works. Rather, it came through a promise given to those who believe in Jesus Christ. We can take a deep breath, can't we? 
we can relax because each day I realize my depravity and I say, man, I must be going to hell. Man, I must earn my way back to God. Man, I must do better today because God hates me now or God's probably turned his back on me. Anyone ever feel that way? Now, you people who know grace, you really know it, but some of, some of us in here don't realize that. There's this guilt that comes over us and this frustration that says, I must earn my way back to God. And Paul is saying, you can't. You cannot do it. The only way is to believe in Jesus Christ. I know it's a little confusing. I know it doesn't make sense to us. But Paul furthers his case that the law and faith work hand in hand. Verse 23, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So we, before we put our faith in Christ, we were all bound by the law. We were under the law because we were putting our faith in our works rather than we were putting our faith in Christ. So essentially, we were bound by the law because the law can't save us. And that's why when many people come to Jesus and say, did we not prophesy? Did we not perform miracles? Did we not deliver demons? What those people are trying to say is, did we not do good? Did we not earn our way? Did we not serve the law really good? And Jesus says, plainly tell you, I never knew you. So it's not about our works. Nevertheless, before we put our faith in Christ, we were bound by the law. The Gentiles would have read this as if it was them being shut out of the promise. That the promises of God, um, you know, the law served as a barrier for them because they weren't Jewish, right? So the laws, the Jewish laws, the laws of the Jews, they're like, you know, this, this is keeping us out of the presence of God. But the Jews would have read this as something that kept Israel separated from the world. So essentially the Jews thought, well, we're going to follow the law. So since we're going to follow the law, then we're going to be better than the world. And the Gentiles were like, well, the law isn't for us, essentially. We're not invited into it because we're not Jewish. So that keeps us out. Essentially both of them misunderstood the law, right? They didn't see it. So the law, whether Jew or Gentile, dictated the way that you interacted with God. If you were a Gentile, it held you off because you didn't follow the law perfectly. If you were a Jew, it held you close because you followed laws and you were God's promised people. Yet the reality of the law was to convict and to be a guardian. That's what it was there to do, to convict us and to be a guardian. Verse 24, so the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we no longer, we are no longer under a guardian. See, what the law did was serve as a guide to point to Christ. Better stated, the law in its original form was to point to Christ so that we could find him. Isn't that weird? I guess, why would I ever need God? Why would I ever need Christ if I thought that I was perfect? 
If I never knew that I fell short, why would I need anything? Because if there wasn't a law, if there were not rules, then essentially I'm the smartest person in every room, and if everyone would ever just listen to me, the world would be a better place. Amen? You guys don't ever think that? You're lying. All of us think that. But what keeps us from thinking that is Scripture, is the law to love others the way that you love yourself. The two greatest commandments where Jesus says, look, that's, that's the sum of the law. Love God with everything. Love others the way that you love yourself. We don't do that well. So if it wasn't for the law convicting us, then I would just think that everyone else in the world is dumb. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're thinking. But the law reveals something different. And when the law reveals something different and says, you need to treat your wife differently, you need to lead the church this way, internally, here's how you need to honor me. And you say, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm failing, I'm failing, I'm trying, I'm trying. Then I say, I need something else. I need a savior because I've never said I've completed anything perfectly. There's always this state of my heart and my being and my spirit that continually goes to God each day and says, I'm trying. I'm trying. But I can never, I can never say it's done perfectly. The, the law exposes that for me. The law exposes that for you. The law is not there to condemn you. The law is there to point you to a need that you have deep within your being. And what happens is, is when we have people who say, well, there's just a overlording God that hates us and he, he's just a, um, yeah, he's just an evil person who just wants you to follow his rules, you're missing the point. That's not what he's saying. These people don't want to understand what the law is there for. If they would humble themselves and say, you know what, what I'm doing is not what the Bible is telling me to do, I need help then you can be saved. That's it. You're not perfect. You are not perfect today, nor will you ever be on this side. Now, do not take that as a reason to go home and sin today. Don't do it. Last thing I want is for God to say, hey, you gave people permission to sin. Well, I'm not, and it's probably not even dependent upon me like that anyways. It's actually dependent on your heart and the way that you're hearing the Scripture, right? Nevertheless, the, the law is there to reveal it to us. So, um, the, the law serves as a guide that pointed us to Jesus. Better stated, the law in its original form was to point to Christ so that we could find him. And then by having faith in Christ, we could be declared righteous. But now that Christ has come, we are no longer under the law. We do not, we do not need the law to learn about Christ because he has been revealed. Now, does that mean that the law is pointless? Absolutely not. The law is very important. Studying the law helps us understand the heart of God. Studying the law helps us understand God's priorities and his 
original intent. Studying the law helps us relate to him. And all scripture is God-breathed and um, able to be used for correction and rebuking and edifying and to bring life. So the law is not just dismissed out of our life anymore. One author says it this way. To illustrate what Paul is saying, to illustrate the difference in these two covenants, right? Covenant with Moses and the covenant with Abraham. The way to illustrate works and um, grace is he said, the covenant of the promise to Abraham is the grace train. So picture an actual train headed in a straight direction to the promised kingdom. There are a countless number of cars on this train, and in these cars we find empty seats prepared for the saints of God. Suddenly, another train appears on the other side of the tracks. The second train is called the law train, and it is also moving, but it's going the opposite direction, and its destination is the lake of fire. This sounds like a third-rate movie right now, doesn't it? And unlike the grace train, the law train is already full to overflowing. The grace train is empty seat, has empty seats, unlimited cars. But um, the law train is already full. As the people in the law train consider their surroundings and their destination, they become aware of the jeopardy of their destination. They come to the realization that they are on the wrong train, headed in a terrible direction. But there's no way to steer the train because it's glued to the tracks. They're on one track. If they stay on this train, there is no way avoiding the outcome. Then in their search for an answer, some notice the train on the nearby tracks heading in the opposite direction. On the side of the train is written the conductor's name, Jesus Christ. Immediately, they see their chance. They decide to jump from one train to another. They leave the law train to the grace train. And in a moment, right, in a moment, picture it. A lot of people uh, saw this hat I wore to graduation and called me Indiana Jones. So imagine Indiana Jones jumping from one train heading one direction and the other heading the other. In an instant, you're heading in a different direction. That's the way the grace of God works. In a moment, you are headed to hell, and then you receive his love, and you receive his blood, and you receive his grace, and the power of him raising from the grave. You jump to him, and you put your faith in him, and in an instant, you're headed a completely different direction. Amen? Now you are moving towards the kingdom. But then at a point, the tracks diverge, and the law train heads away and fades off into the distance. Meanwhile, the grace train continues onward. Only now we notice the train conductor has his head outside the window, yelling, all aboard. 
and still more people are running up to the train and jumping on. When we look out more closely, we notice the train conductor is Christ himself. It's a really unique analogy that many of us have been on this law train. The world is on this law train looking and saying, if I need to give this up, I don't want Christ. Filter, filter, filter. Um, yeah. There's just such this conflict of... Um, there's this idea that you have to come to Christ clean, right? When in reality of it is, we all come to Christ messy, and even if we think that we're clean, we're still messy. So to think that you have to give certain things up before you come to Christ, I just don't think that that's the case. You come to Christ and you let him fix everything else through sanctification, through a life with him, not immediately. Amen? So, so as we look at this analogy, we are to notice that the law train was never a solution for sin. But it certainly made the people of where a need of a solution. The world, the people who do not know Jesus as their Savior and put their faith in him, they are on the train, one-way train, headed to hell where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's scary. That's sad. So this train makes people aware that they need a solution. Their train was headed and is headed towards fire. But then when the grace train showed up, they understood that there was a way out. There was something headed in the different direction. Therefore, if they were willing to leave the works of the law train to accept that the grace train was headed in the right direction, then and only then would they be saved. See, we can't keep on living on this works train. We can't keep on thinking that we can earn our way back to God or bridge the gap to God. The only way to God is through his son and faith in him. Amen? So, Jesus himself draws us to him. Remember, the law wasn't until it was. See, the Judaizers were essentially teaching that these trains worked together, and you needed them to make it to heaven. See, the Judaizers taught that these trains were headed in the right direction, in the same direction, or they were on the same track, and to get on it, you needed Jesus and you needed works. But what the Bible explicitly shares, what Jesus explicitly shares, what Paul explicitly shares, is works and grace are headed in two different directions. Yet the reality of it was, is the Judaizers wanted the church to spend all of their time on the works train. That's what they wanted. And sometimes what the focus can be on is so much on the works train and trying to earn our way to God that we miss Christ. So, verse 26, Galatians 3, verse 26. So, in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. So, in Christ, you are all children of God through faith, not works, right? 
For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself in Christ. This is interesting. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. For you are, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, the heirs according to the promise. Paul lets us now know um, that all who believe and put their faith in Jesus Christ are made sons and daughters. Amen? It is our faith alone that brings us into his family. It is our faith alone that brings us into his family. Therefore, this identity of being in his family takes precedence over who we used to be. See, we are baptized into the body of Christ by faith. We are clothed in righteousness because of our faith. And Paul is sharing this to the Galatian church because in Greek culture, you were not allowed to wear certain items until you're, you were an adult. Therefore, clothing made you distinct from others. So he's saying, look, the things that you're wearing, the things that you're eating, that's not it. So Paul was saying, whether a Jew or Gentile, slave or free, young or old, male or female, whatever, whatever clothes you wear, whatever your past was, when it comes to Christ, if we have faith in him, we are one. Now you see why the world wants to label and identify us. You see why there's such an attack on the word identify. I identify. And what Paul is actually telling us here is the way we are supposed to identify is one with Christ. Amen? Amen. He doesn't say identify male, female. Slave nor free. Oh, I'm pushing some buttons. Someone's going to mute me online. How does he say? Look, he says, um, neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one with Christ. That's how we are identified now. Our identity is far greater to be rooted in Christ than it is by even how we are physically made here. So you see why the world is attacking identity, why Satan's plan is to teach people to identify certain ways, because the ultimate goal is for us to identify as one with Christ. So the enemy is trying to brainwash and teach and destroy the thoughts and the minds of a younger generation and an older generation and people to confuse them to say, you can be whatever you want to be, because God's ultimate plan is for us to be one with him. Amen? We are one with Christ, and that is my identity. Our kids that we dedicated today can be one with Christ. The younger generation can be one with Christ. That be their identity. So, Paul is telling those in Galatia to stop finding ways to divide because we are all to unite in Christ so, who is in Christ today? Who is in Christ today? Like, seriously, I believe that I'm in Christ today. 
Praise God. And Paul's asking them, hey, quit dividing yourself. Quit fighting over rules and grace. Live under grace. Quit finding things to divide and cause frustration and division points within in the church. So look, you and I are in Christ today. So what should we stop doing? We should quit dividing. We should walk in unity. We should quit gossiping, right? Why? Because we're all one in Christ. We are all a part of the same family. Because we are in Christ. We are all descendants of Abraham. And one author says it this way. Paul is saying that believers no longer need to be concerned with issues around being a Jew versus Gentile or other issues of culture in the questions of their salvation. Those distinctions only make sense in the first place because God established them through the law. Choosing to work in Israel, um, yeah, is the exclusion of Gentiles for the most part. So, see, once Christ came, the law had been met. It's met its purpose. The law went away. So if the law has gone away, then distinctions between Jew and Gentile went away with it. It's done. The distinction between West Liberty and Mechanicsburg, it's gone. Between Michigan and Ohio State, it's done. Between whatever ethnicity you are, gone. We are brothers and sisters united with Christ. See, faith in Christ is the great equalizer. On the other hand, Paul is not saying that we no longer observe practical differences between members of the body. It's not what he's saying. Both Jews and Gentiles still exist within the church. Men and women still exist. But he's saying that's not where we create division. We find unity in our identity is one with Christ. The moment a man or a woman comes to faith, they do not see do not cease being male or female. Likewise, other natural distinctions will still remain. But Paul is teaching that these differences are irrelevant for the purpose of salvation. Therefore, as Christians, we don't place ourselves back under the law given to the Jews to lead them to Christ. That's not what we're supposed to do. In other words, we do not need to become Jew Jews to be saved, since salvation doesn't depend on any identity except our identity in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. That's how we are saved, by an identity as one with Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, um, ask that you would set us free from the sense of earning our way to you. Father, I thank you for the conviction of the law, but may we see the law appropriately. That the law is leading us to this place of needing you and becoming one with you. So help us realize, Father, when we fall short today, when we have a bad thought today, when we make a bad a statement today, when we judge someone today, when we speed today, 
when we become too political today, when we worry about the future today, when we covet today, Father, when we walk in pride today, and we recognize that because of the law, may we praise you for being so good and fulfilling the law. May we understand our need for you. May we confess our sin to you, Father, and move on and be so thankful that we have a God that is long-suffering and patient and kind and fair and just. So I thank you that you sent your son, Father, because we can't fulfill it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Our baby bottles are due today, so if you brought your baby bottle, turn it in. If not, then um, get it to us as soon as possible, as in like by tomorrow. God bless you, and see you guys next week.